thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty as I continue this series on the rule of law. And I think you're going to find today uh, very interesting, and, you, and hopefully you'll take some notes. Last week we talked about what the rule of law actually is, and we used a quote from Lord Bracton stating that the law is what makes the king, and so the king should wield back his dominion to the law. The clear implication being that there is a law that transcends the king, that is over the king, to which the king is subject, and of course that law would be the law of God. And then we traced how that began to work itself out in the common law through some quotes from William Blackstone in his commentaries on the laws of England, which I've noted many times are very important to understanding the United States Constitution. And the United States Supreme Court still turns to Blackstone's commentaries to interpret the meaning of the phrases that are in the Constitution because the words and those phrases are derived from the common law. So as I've said in other occasions, if you don't know the common law, you really can't understand the Constitution. But I ended last week with this statement and, and promised I would follow up with it, and so here I go. And Blackstone said this about the law of nature being coeval with mankind. Now, that, that word is a word we're not very familiar with. It's not E-V-I-L, but E-V-A-L, coeval, meaning it's contemporaneous with or occurring at the same time. So this law of nature came with mankind. He says, and dictated by God himself is, of course, superior in obligation to any other. And he's referring there, of course, to civil or what he often called municipal law or to human law or we might call today positive law. He says that it's binding over all the globe, in all countries, and at all times. Then he makes this statement, no human laws are of any validity if contrary to this, and such of them as are valid derive all their force and all their authority from this original. Now that would flabbergast most people today would be foreign actually to even most Christians, Christian lawyers I should say, though if they really thought about it they, they would probably agree with that. The human laws, the validity of them, their bindingness against our conscience is really because and to the extent they coincide with God's immutable eternal law. Now he went on and talked about the fact that we have reason and we need to resort to reason. His very next sentence uh, goes into that point and that's where I would like for us to focus for a bit today. Immediately following what I just read to you, Blackstone said this, but in order to apply this, this, this idea that uh, there's a law of nature that, that God has imposed upon all of his created being and all of creation, including man, and uh, we need to conform our human law to that law. Blackstone says, in order to apply this to the particular exigencies of each individual, 
it is still necessary to have recourse to reason, whose office it is to discover, as was before observed, and I quoted that last week, what the law of nature directs in every circumstance of life, by considering what method will tend the most effectually to our own substantial happiness. And of course, Blackstone would, would understand that our substantial happiness is rooted in God and our knowledge of God. But Blackstone is not like Enlightenment thinkers who think that man's reason is itself sufficient to understand all things necessary to the happiness of mankind and for the ordering of society and for the making of law. Because in the very next sentence he says this, and if our reason were always, as in our first ancestor before his transgression. Now who is he referring to there? Adam and Eve. He's referring to what is said in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, 29, that God made man upright. In the first man, there was an original righteousness, an inclination towards God, and an understanding of what was righteous. And so he's, he's saying here, if, if our reason were as in our first ancestor Adam before his transgression, clear and perfect, unruffled by passions, unclouded by prejudice, unimpaired by disease or intemperance, the task would be pleasant and easy. We should need no other guide but this, referring of course to reason. And then he adds this, but every man now finds the contrary in his own experience. You see, our own experience testifies to us that what we often think is reasonable proves not to be reasonable. So he says, we find in our own experience that our reason is corrupt and our understanding full of ignorance and error. Well, what do we do now, you might say? And to this, Blackstone gives an answer. Again, I quote, This has given manifold occasion for the benign interposition of divine providence, which in compassion to the frailty, the imperfection, and the blindness of human reason has been pleased at sundry times and in diverse manners. Sounds a lot like the first verses of Hebrews chapter 1, doesn't it? to discover and to enforce its laws by an immediate and direct revelation. The doctrines thus delivered we called the revealed or divine law, and they are to be found only in the Holy Scriptures. Wow, can you imagine somebody saying that today in politics? Blackstone continues, these precepts, these precepts that we, we discover through our reason when revealed, are found upon comparison to be really part of the original law of nature, as they tend in all their consequences to man's felicity. But, he says, we are not from that to conclude the knowledge of these truths was attainable by reason in its present corrupted state, since we find that until they were revealed, they were hid from the wisdom of the ages. Blackstone then continues to make fun of some of the Enlightenment thinkers, I guess you could say, the people essentially of today, 
by saying this, undoubtedly the revealed law is of infinitely more authenticity than that moral system which is framed by ethical writers and denominated the natural law. You see, what began to shift with actually Thomas Hobbes in his book Leviathan was the belief that man created his own sort of natural law out of his reason. It wasn't a law imposed by our Creator. And, and so it was said that the new modern natural law abandoned the notion of the Creator, abandoned the effects of the fall, and therefore this new natural law depended upon the varying geniuses of its various proponents. That's really what we have going on in the Supreme Court. Can you find five people that have some kind of new insight, supposedly, and they can create some kind of new liberty? And he goes on to explain that. He says, because one is the law of nature expressly declared so to be by God himself, and the other is only what, by the assistance of human reason, we imagine to be that law. If we could be as certain of the latter, that which we come up with, out of our own reason only. He said, if we could be as, as certain of that as we are of the former, both would have an equal authority, but until then, they can never be put in any competition together. And so he says this, upon these two foundations, the law of nature, the real one, the law of nature and nature's God, the law that was imposed upon all created existence by God himself, and the law of revelation depend all human laws. And that is to say, no human laws should be suffered to contradict these. Now that's quite a statement. You can see the Christian heritage underlying the common law that underlies our Constitution. And my, 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 how we have fallen away from it. Now, one thing you might say is, but, but David, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not going to find in the Scripture some revelation about uh, stop signs and whether the traffic should proceed on the left or the right and all the other kinds of things that we have in law. And, and, and Blackstone addresses that. He says, it, it is true, a great number of indifferent points exist in which both the divine law and the natural law leave man at his own liberty. He says, but those which are found necessary for the benefit of society to be restrained within certain limits, he said, well, in some of those cases, the human laws have their greatest force and efficacy on those points that are not a matter of indifference, where the human laws are only declaratory of and act in subordination to the law of God, the law of nature, and of nature's God. And he gives an example. For example, in the case of murder, this is expressly forbidden by the divine and demonstrably by the natural law. And from these prohibition arises the true unlawfulness of this crime. So what is Blackstone saying here? He's saying there are some things that are so true to natural law and, and so clearly affirmed by the revealed law that, that there can be no indifference to them. Murder is wrong. The fact that we pass laws on murder isn't what makes murder wrong. It was actually the common law crime of murder. Abortion at one point was considered a common law crime. 
We pass those statutes to state more clearly, perhaps, what is murder and to help differentiate the grades of killing from, for example, murder to recklessness or negligence, homicide, those kinds of things. But murder is wrong regardless of what the human law says or doesn't say. And the human law doesn't give any more force to what God has already said is the law. Now, he then goes on to this issue of rights, and this is, this is so important. I've been talking about this in connection with vaccines and mask mandates. He says, Those rights, then, which God and nature have established, and are therefore called natural rights. And we talk a lot about natural rights and human rights, but see, he's talking about a different thing. He's talking about those which are natural, that are human, because they are imposed by God upon his creation upon humanity, and he continues, such as our life and liberty need not the aid of human laws to be more effectually invested in every man than they are. In other words, we don't need to have a law enacted which says you have a right to life or to liberty or to property. You have them because they've been invested or vested in you by God. And he goes on and says, neither do those rights receive any additional strength when declared by the municipal laws to be inviolable. So the fact that the law says you can't take another person's life because you have a right to life isn't made stronger because we announce that there's a right to life. So, so you see how those things work? There are some things that, that are, are in the nature of case so true, that are so consistent with the natural felicity of mankind that our rights to be protected from wrongs does not come from the government, nor does the declaration of something's wrongness come from the government. The right and the wrong come from God. And in those cases, he said, the legislature is acting, quote, in subordination to the great lawgiver transcribing and publishing his precepts. And I think that's just so fascinating. That's been so lost. And, and my friends, if we will begin to advocate again for the Ninth Amendment, using the Ninth Amendment that reflects the common law, we will once again be able to infuse into our constitutional jurisprudence common law concepts and hold the court to them, even if they don't want to acknowledge that those concepts come from God. They would say that, well, they're from, uh, you know, the very existence of nature. Well, that's fine. That's better than where we are now, saying there is no God, and there is no God that gives any law to anybody, and we can make it up as we go. And in fact, men can be women, and women can be men, and marriage can be made of two people of the same sex, or uh, opposite sex, or maybe three people. You know, you see, the reality is you can have no rule of law, and law can go anywhere if it's not tied to any objective anthropological givens. And the only place that any anthropological objective givens can be found is if there is a God who has created in the beginning. And see, when we lose this doctrine of God, we lose the rule of law. 
Well, I'm going to close here for today, and next week wrap up this series on the rule of law. I think you'll find some of the stuff we're going to cover next week as we wrap it up to be fascinating how, how really we just can't get away from the need for the rule of law even in our modern society. And I hope you'll join me next week on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.